Let's seek the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I do praise and thank you for your blessed and holy Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the unspeakable riches that you have poured out upon unworthy, rebellious sinners, making us thy dear children through the glorious work of your Holy Son. We thank you for the love that you had for your dear people before the foundation of the world. And we thank you for the blessings and the wonderful surprises that we find day by day as you work out your glorious and eternal purpose before our eyes. Now I thank you, Lord, for the time you have granted me with these dear saints, and I pray your richest blessings upon them. I pray that you would help me to speak your word to your dear children tonight. They are your children. You purchased them. It is your word. I pray that you would grant me to handle it to thy glory and to the edification of your people. Preserve them from my errors and fill them, O Father, with thy blessed spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. May the Lord add his blessing to his precious word. Modern-day Turkey was known as Asia in the days of the New Testament. The Apostle John ministered among the churches that were found there, and he wrote this epistle, and a blessed epistle it is, to correct errors that had been sown among the early Christians by false teachers. We have been at war. The seed of the serpent will always be in conflict with the seed of the woman until our Lord brings this all to a close. And the battle was very intense in those early days as every imaginable kind of false teaching attempted to creep into the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But as John wrote this epistle to make corrections to many of the false doctrines swarming around the saints of God, he gives us some of the most powerful tests found in the New Testament regarding this most important question. What is a true Christian? What is a Christian? The danger of the false teacher's message was not that they utterly rejected Christ or Christianity outwardly. The threat that these posed was a very subtle and a very deadly one. They professed faith in a Christ. But it was not the Christ of Scripture. They professed to walk with their Christ. But their lifestyle was not in harmony with the Christianity of Scripture. Theirs was a mixed message and revealed that these people who professed a knowledge of Christ, in fact, lived like the world. Two thousand years, this is still very relevant to us. There are many who populate especially American evangelicalism who make a profession of a Christ whose lives speak nothing of that Christ. Surely this is relevant for us today and will always be relevant until the return of our Lord. In our nation, many profess to know the Christ of Scripture and are quite certain that they are bound for the joys of heaven, yet their lives speak otherwise. Here, then, are some of the questions that we all must face sooner or later. Am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? Am I born of God's Spirit? How do I know? Anyone who has been in the ministry for any amount of time knows that these questions are often in the minds of the Lord's people. But I will say to you, on the authority of God's Word, that it is absolute foolishness, it is the height of foolishness, to use any standard but the Word of God to answer these questions. We have people all over the landscape today living according to their feelings. They're Christians because they had a certain type of experience five minutes ago or five years ago or 50 years ago. And because they've had a certain kind of experience, maybe because they've cried more tears than the fellow down the block, because of this experience, they're assured that they're bound for heaven. Or because they've walked an aisle or prayed a prayer in a meeting, written down in the front of their Bible, well, on this particular day I cast my vote for Jesus, they're bound for heaven. And it's not necessarily so. 
The Word of God reveals the work of God in His people. And they may read His Word and find the Christ that saves and what a Christian is in God's perfect revelation. So it is to there that we go. John begins his epistles by telling us that he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. If you do not read 1 John regularly, I urge you to do so. It is a wonderful, wonderful, sometimes perplexing book. But it answers many of the questions that often arise in the hearts of God's children. And it points us over and over and over to the biblical answer of what is a child of God? What is a Christian? What are they like? How can we know? John's glorious epistle begins by telling us that he was an eyewitness of the living Christ, the Word of Life. He saw Christ's miracles. He heard Christ's teaching. What a blessing that had to have been. He stood by His cross. He saw Him after His resurrection. He watched Him ascend into heaven. As an apostle and as a spiritual father to these early Christians, John tells them that Christ delivered this message. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The apostle then gives us several tests by which we may know whether we have received God's message, Christ's message, or not. Do we know what it means to walk in the light? As He is in the light? This is how John describes Christianity. And unfortunately in our day, that seems to be unusual and strange language, but it was day-to-day language when John wrote. He wasn't writing to be mysterious. He was writing what was clearly... in his heart and in his mind, is inspired by the Spirit of God to edify and to build up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, a man wrote a commentary or something like a commentary years ago calling John's epistle Tests of Life. And that's exactly what John's epistle is. Tests of Life. What does life from heaven look like in sinners? And it's all set out for us in John's most blessed epistle. Let me give you a very quick overview and then bring us to the subject that we are working toward this evening. But God willing, we will be looking just at a few themes this evening. I preached just on this one subject for six weeks in our own assembly, so I'm trying to do some heavy compression here this evening. But uh, love not the world is our subject. Love not the world. But that's not the first test in John's epistle. And I want us to work our way up to that. First of all, the, the first test that John sets before his readers is that confessing our sin and trusting in the shed blood of Christ alone for our pardon is walking in the light. Now, whatever else you may think a Christian is, or should be, or may become, unless you have owned your sins before God, and repented, 
and trusted in the resurrected Savior alone for your righteousness, you are still in your sins. The only righteousness that our God receives is the perfect righteousness accomplished for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are to confess our sins. Now, we're not informing God when we use the word confess. The the Greek word there doesn't mean that we're informing God. What it means is we're speaking the same thing. God has told us in His law and in His holy word what is sin and what is righteousness. And when the mirror of His word is held up to us and we begin to see our wickedness and our darkened hearts, then we know that what He has said is true. And we speak the same thing. We confess, yes, Lord, I'm a liar. And it's sin. I am wicked. I am covetous. I'm a, a, a fornicator or an adulterer, immoral of, of, all, of all kinds. Do I find in my heart immorality of all kinds? Do I find in my heart? And we confess our sins... Not to any man, but to the living God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust in Him alone. This begins walking in the light. Test number two is obedience. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know Him. And it couldn't be any plainer. John's words are so simple that you have to read tons and tons of commentaries to explain away what he's saying. Hereby, we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So obedience to Christ is not what saves us. It is a test of life. It speaks that the life of God is in the soul. Of a man. Test number three is loving the brethren. Friend, regardless of what you will tell me your experience is, the command of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we're to love one another. As He loved us. And we will live all of our lives learning that glorious love and then expressing it to each other. But today we live a democracy and uh, a sinful individualism has crept into the churches of America especially. And everyone acts like their own little life and their own little experience is all that matters. And brethren, the scriptures tell us that glory to God is through Jesus Christ in the church, in His body. We are His covenant people And He has saved us for Himself. And He's commanded us to love one another. John comes to that theme over and over and over again. Brethren, I preached for a year and a half on 1 John in our own assembly several years ago. And it was was utterly transforming. Because I confess to you to my own shame that I held up many things as tests of what was Christian and what was not. That ultimately seeped out of my own limited and sinful mind. And we're all guilty of holding up our own four or five things and if you don't fit into that mold, you're not in. Brethren, 
Jesus Christ commanded us to love one another as He loved us. So we must fill our hearts and minds with His Word to know how He loved us and then love one another in that way. Our churches would be transformed. And that brings us to test number four. Walking in the light includes all of these things, but that brings us to verse 15. Love not the world. So God willing tonight, I hope to attempt to just introduce you to this very important subject under these particular heads. I want us to consider first what loving the world is. What does that mean? What loving the world is. And we will look at what these words and terms themselves ultimately point us to. And then what loving the world is means how does that hammered out what does it look like what should we love so let's begin considering these things the first thing that we must grasp is what loving the world means according to john and i do not know that i can tell you definitively because it is clearly broad he intended it to be broad but he also expected those that heard him to understand what he meant and i'm afraid the modern church understands little what he meant. This is a commandment from Almighty God delivered with apostolic authority. Love not the world. This is not a a holy suggestion for the spirit-filled and victorious life. This is a command for God's dear children to prosecute with all of their hearts. Love not the world. Why would those who have been conquered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ have to be told such a thing? Well, because the Lord has been pleased to give us this treasure in earthen vessels. And there is going to be a battle in the believer's life all of his days. But it's the right battle. Before we're Christians, we're at peace with our sins and at war with God. When the grace of God enters our souls, when God gives us a new heart, we're at peace with God by faith in Christ and at war with our sins. I assure you, if you will read Romans chapter 8 carefully, you will find that those that are led by the Holy Spirit, that the sign is not speaking in tongues. The sign is all out war against your sins. It is they that are led of the Spirit. So, we have been given a commandment to love not the world. We are inclined by nature, our wicked hearts before we are regenerated by the glorious and gracious work of the Holy Spirit, loves the world. We love the filth and the trash and the sensuality of the world. We love its themes. We love its... It's heroes. We love its ideals. As with any other command of our beloved Lord, we want to have as clear an understanding as possible so that we might obey it with all of our hearts. That we might truly be the blessed trophies of His sovereign grace. So we must first examine the word love and then the word world. Love is perhaps 
the most abused word in especially American culture. We love everything. I mean, we, we love hot dogs. We love this place. We love hamburgers. We love, I mean, we love cars. We love, uh, we just love everything except righteousness. Unfortunately, the media has taken the word love and made it synonymous with sex. Rarely is it ever love. So it's not, con- it's not surprising that in our day, people should be confused about what love means and what loving the world would mean. But the word love is one we want to think about for just a few moments. Words in the Bible often take a new meaning by the Holy Spirit's guidance, or at least new shades of meaning sometimes. And it is so for the word agapao, which means love. It is used to express God's love for the world in John 3.16. For God so loved. For God so loved the world. And we know that verse, I trust. The essence of this kind of love is self-sacrifice. It is a love that is seen in its self-sacrifice. It is the opposite of the self-centered love of the world. However, John does not use this word in that same sense here. He uses it actually in its classical meaning. That of a love called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object loved. Something called out of the heart. We see something. We experience something. And it draws out of our hearts an attachment, an appreciation, a desire for. And that's what he's saying. Do not look upon the world and what it represents. And pour out your affections. Do not look at it and think it valuable. In the sense of setting your heart upon it. And that will take some explanation. The word as used here refers to fondness and affection for an object. As I said, because of its value, it is a love that originates from attraction and it issues forth, it issues forth in admiration and esteem. We see it, we like it, we love it, we want it, we want to emulate it, we want to possess it. It stirs up many kinds of emotions within us. As I mentioned this morning, I love Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Let me read what he says about the word love. I think you'll find it encouraging. You won't find it in any modern dictionaries. It says, In a general sense to be pleased with, to regard with affection, on account of some qualities which excite pleasing sensations, or desire of gratification. See, he understood the essence of it. He knew the way the Greeks used it. And he understood, as a matter of fact, the way John was using it here. This is how John is saying, Love not the world. Do not let its qualities excite within you that consuming desire 
Webster goes on. He says, We love a friend on account of some qualities which give us pleasure in his society. We love a man who has done us a favor. We love our parents and our children on account of their connection with us and on account of many qualities which please us. We love to retire to a cool shade in the summer. We love a warm room in winter. He finally says, The Christian loves his Bible. In short, we love whatever gives us pleasure and delight. Now, you see, he had some real insight here. He said there are all kinds of things that can stir up that desire in us, that affection. We see it, it brings us gratification, and we begin to pour out our affections upon it. And Webster says the Christian loves his Bible. It brings out the treasures that he ought to love. Amen. In short, we love whatever gives us pleasure and delight, whether animal or intellectual. And if our hearts are right, we love God above all things as the sum of all excellence and all the attributes which can communicate happiness to intelligent beings. That's a good definition. That's a good dictionary. It was written by a man who loved Christ and His grace. But this puts the finger on what we want to talk about. This is what John is going after. He says, You that are walking in the light, you that have seen yourself sinners in the eyes of God, you that realize that you should burn in hell under the condemnation of a just and holy and righteous God, you who have been rescued by the grace of that God, don't let the trinkets of the world steal your affections. Love not the world. Love not the world. I love the way Webster says, if our hearts are right, we love God supremely. This is what John's going for. Let's talk about the world for a minute. Anyone that's ever done much study of Scripture finds out that the word world has many definitions and that it's used many ways. We have to be very careful, very cautious in the way that we handle that word. The Greek word here is cosmos, and it has various definitions. I won't bore you and give you all of them right now. Some, some lexicons and some uh, commentaries will list as many as seven and eight. But John is not telling us that we should reject creation. See, creation was good. God created everything in six days, and He said, very good. And when He says, love not the world, He's not telling us in some way that we should not love the moon and the stars and the hills and the valleys and the rivers and the oceans that our God in His majesty and glory has created to reflect His glorious attributes. He's not saying that. John is referring to the world order of sinful men enslaved by Satan. According to Vincent, world in this sense means... Listen carefully. Now, this is a mouthful. Obviously, I 
I didn't write this. But Vincent says in his word studies that world is the sum total of human life in the ordered world. Considered apart from, alienated from, and hostile to God. And of the earthly things which seduce from God. That's what the world is. That's what the world is. It's the sum total of sinful human life in this world considered apart from God, alienated from God by its rebellions, and hostile to God because of its darkened hearts. And the earthly things in that system that seduce from God. The world consists of the nations, the cultures, the spirits of the age which are inspired by fallen mankind whose darkened hearts and minds are infected and affected by sin and the powers of darkness. One man defines the world this way. I love this one as well. All that floating mass That's a great start. All that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations, at any time current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitutes a most real and effective power being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale. Again, inevitably to exhale. In other words, he says, the world as a system is inescapable for us and our human natures. We breathe the very ideals and concepts that go on around us. I mean, the very, the very stamp of authenticity on that today is the fact that if someone sees it on TV, it must be true. That's become the voice of authority. People do anything just to have their faces on television for a few minutes. There are several seconds of glory. This is the validator of what's real and what's normal. It's inescapable. He says, we just breathe it in and breathe it out. So, brethren, when we talk about the world, when John says, love not the world, this is ultimately what he's talking about. He's talking about that portion of mankind and the world order under Satan who are under his domain and his influence and whose religions, philosophies, ideas, entertainments, goals, Desires, fashions, pleasures originate from radically depraved hearts and who are by that nature utterly hostile to Jesus Christ, His Lordship, and His people. But they're very attractive to the flesh. And so John says, love not the world. 
I mean, today, the primary religion in, in America is being cool. Everything's cool. 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 It's got to be cool. If it's not cool, it's not acceptable. Everything's cool. It's inescapable, except by the grace of God. Amen. The world is the society and manner of life constructed by Christless hearts. John says, don't love it. Don't worry about being cool. Don't be seduced by the things of this world. What does God's Word say about the world? Let's look at the content and the nature of the world for just a few moments. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us in John 17, verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known Thee. The first thing that we need to see is that from the lips of our own beloved Master, the world does not know the Father. It is therefore disconnected from truth and from life. Secondly, John chapter 1 verse 10 says, He, speaking of Christ, was in the world and the world was made by Him and the world knew Him not. The world as a system and is the people who live in it and by it. The world does not know Christ the Son. Doesn't know the Father. Doesn't know Christ the Son. John chapter 14, verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him. Brethren, the Scriptures take the pains to tell us in clear detail that the world, that system, does not know the Father, the Son, nor the Holy Ghost, the living God. It does not think according to God. It does not live to honor, to glorify, or to worship Him in anything that it does. First John chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. It doesn't understand God's people. Unfortunately, today, in the world of user-friendly churches, we look and sound and act exactly like the world in a, in a misguided attempt to seduce them into the Gospel. Instead of preaching the glories of Christ, we do everything we can to kind of sneak the gospel around to them. Now, I'm not saying there are not times when we must be careful, cautious, and wise with the way that we bring the gospel to some people. The Lord Jesus Christ sat down on the well and said, Give me some water to drink. And before the conversation was over, He was talking about the water of life. I'm not talking about a holy creativity. I'm talking about this... Uh, bring him in with the dog and pony show and sneak the gospel in later. Oh. Now, what, the, the, what I'm wanting to say is that with God's true children, there is a distinction that is utterly inescapable. God's children are following their Master. 
And they're different from the world. And that's why the world doesn't know them. The world cannot understand us. Why would we want to be at a Bible study on Friday night when you could be partying? Why would you uh, want to listen to some of the silly stuff they listen to? Why does everything have to be about Jesus? I sat down and sang for a, a man one night. He said he'd listen to me for a few minutes if I'd sing him a song. So I sang to him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, that's what it is about you Christians. Why does everything have to be about Jesus? Because He's life. He's the one that took me out of my darkness and brought me into His glorious light. He translated me from the kingdom of darkness, God in His great mercies, into the kingdom of His dear Son. He gives His children new hearts and they have new desires. And they love what is pure when they hated it before. They love what is right and they love what is clean. They love His Word and they follow Him. And the world cannot understand that any more than the Christ who gave them the new hearts. It doesn't know the Father, it doesn't know the Son, it doesn't know the Holy Spirit, it doesn't know God's people. John 15, verses 18 and 19 says, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. We get some comfort from our Master. Sometimes it doesn't seem comforting, but it is. He says, if ye were of the world. This is the world He's talking about. If, you're, if the source of your life emanated from the things they think and they want and they grasp for every day of their lives. If you were of that, well, they'd recognize you. Cut of the same cloth. If you were of the world, the world would love His own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Young people, follow after Christ with all of your heart and put aside all thoughts of being popular and highly thought of. If the Lord gives you Pharaoh and uh, gives you favor in Pharaoh's court, fine. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.